Good evening. So evaluating secular theories about human life, that's what we're going to talk about this evening, which for some of you young folks out here, this is called a dry erase board. <laughs> you write on it with what's called a dry erase marker. And yeah, I was, we, I was writing on it earlier, and you can tell some of the young people, yeah, maybe a little bit off to the side, and then probably a chair next to it. Claire is going to probably be writing on it later. So, yep. So evaluating secular theories about human life, and such an important topic, such an important conversation. Uh, and part of the reason for the dry erase board is here after a little bit of teaching, we're going to kind of jump in and have some interaction. So it'll be some teaching, but then some discussion, some interaction, because all of us need to learn to think through the kind of questions that we're going to be asking tonight, some of the concerns that we're going to be talking through. Yeah, some of you who are in high school or headed to college or um, even into the workplace, into schools, into wherever you might be going, um, the you know, critical race theory, which will be the case study we look at tonight, isn't sort of a new idea. It's not a new kind of question. Secular theories aren't new on the scene. And so the question we aim to answer in the, this present discussion is how do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, faithfully engage secular theories arising from the disciplines of anthropology, sociology, psychology, and the like. When you ask it that way, you realize, okay, this isn't new. Psychology, sociology, anthropology. I mean, just think over the last 200 years, what are some of the secular theories that have been thrown around in our culture? Just call them out. So postmodernism, just as a massive philosophical framework. What else? I'm sorry? So Marxism is one. What else? Feminism. Evolutionary theory. You think about how significant even evolutionary theory has operated at every sphere of our culture. You think about Freudian psychology and every other form of psychology and all kinds of sociological theories. So this isn't a new thing. And this critical race theory certainly won't be the last. Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. I think there's something very comforting about those words from Solomon in the Word of God. Every secular, philosophical, sociological, psychological theory to ever arise in the history of the human race is trying to make sense of reality, and usually trying to make sense of reality without God in the middle. How do you explain human life without Christ? How do you explain human life without the Word of God? Yeah, some of you may have come from churches that use the shape assessment in the past. It was huge, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s. And there's an aspect of that that a lot of churches use it to assess sort of spiritual gifts, to assess weaknesses and strengths. But the P, the personality part of shape, is a personality test that's based on the Myers-Briggs. Some of you may be familiar with the Myers-Briggs. Well, Myers-Briggs was based on the personality theory of Carl Jung. That's how they came up with the four axes of personality. And those four axes of personality came to Carl Jung in a vision that he had where he interacted with a spirit being. How, how many of us got taught that when we're taking that test in churches? And so, again, it, it comes from every direction. When you watch movies, when you listen to music, when 
um, whatever part of our culture you might be engaging in, there's always going to be a current of godless thinking, of trying to make sense of life without God in the middle. And so as pastor elders, the Lord has called us, this is Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we might no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So growing up is something as believers we do together in the church. As pastor elders equip the saints so that we would grow together in speaking truth and love. And so we pray to be equipped for that kind of ministry, to the building up of the church, to be unified in faith, to be unified in knowledge of God, to progress forward together in maturity in order to no longer be children tossed to and fro by the various winds of doctrine, by human cunning, by crafty schemes. And so what we want to do tonight, we, we hope to address critical race theory, but as a case study, not the main focus. And so instead, our primary goal is to be to sort of develop a framework, a way of thinking about and interacting with secular theories that you're going to encounter all over the place. So if you think about a compound microscope, you know, a compound microscope is just a layering of lenses. You just put one lens after another, and each of those lens contributes in some way to helping you see clearly what you're looking at. And so what we want to do tonight is just talk about seven lenses that I think Scripture gives us, seven lenses that as believers that we sort of need to put in front of us so that in whatever it is we're looking at, we can understand it biblically, understand it theologically, understand it in a Christ-centered way, interact with it wisely. Even think about Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, <clears throat> so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. That's why that would be the single greatest factor in the rest of your life for how you interact with the world, is being rooted in the faith, grasping the word of God. You will be far more prepared for the world in which you're entering into by spending your time here than in any book. And we'll talk about that, that this really is the lens that God gives us. It's not just an encyclopedia of facts. Because you go to, Concord, go to your concordance now and look up critical race theory <laughs> and try to find it. And so it's tempting to think, oh, well, I guess that's not what the Bible's about. Well, actually, the things that critical race theory is about is exactly what the Bible's about and so many other theories because the scripture... It, doesn't always operate. It's not an encyclopedia that you go to like a dictionary. It's also lenses through which you see the world. It's food you're meant to eat that nourishes you. It's light that actually helps you see the world. So imagine going into a room that's pitch black, and then someone could just turn the lights on. So they could have sat there and tried to describe to you everything that might be in the room, and you're just trying to just trust what's there. But what God does through his spirit, through his word, is he turns the lights on so that you can actually see what's around you. See to it that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So that means the key to being prepared to wisely engage secular theories about human life is in walking with Christ every day, abiding in him. We have the mind of Christ. So how do we walk in the mind of Christ, thinking his thoughts, seeing what he sees, being rooted in his word and his promises, in his work, in his church? So it means being filled with the spirit and walking in faith. And all of that under the faithful teaching of God's word. And so part of being rooted and built up in Christ is learning to read and interpret and understand all the various philosophies of the world without being taken captive by them. That's the key. Is how do you interact with them? How do you listen to them? How do you ask questions about them and understand them without being taken captive? And that Greek word there literally means taken as plunder. So that as you sort of go into that theory, it doesn't take you as plunder. But that's not the only danger. I think there also is a danger of being terrified of these theories, of being afraid of them of fearing them. And I just want you to know, I want you to walk around tonight knowing you don't have anything to be afraid of if the Lord is your God, if his word is your word, if his spirit is, is in you. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And you do have the mind of Christ and you do have the word of God and he will illumine you to understand the truth. And so while we shouldn't be taken captive by them, we also shouldn't fear them because you'll hear that out there, even among believers and Christian voices, is sort of either something bordering on fear and rage, rather than a thoughtful, peaceful, hopeful in God sense of security. So we're not to be enamored or controlled by the ideas and philosophies of the world, and being anxious and worried about them is another way of being controlled by them. Another way of being taken captive by them is by being enraged by them all the time. And so just to think about it, you can devote way too much time and energy to it in any direction. There's always ditches on each side of the road to fall into. And so we need to learn to see the differences between human tradition and divine revelation, between worldly spirits, to use Paul's words, and the glories of Christ. Because every theory of human life is a claim to knowledge. That'll be one of the lenses that we look at tonight. Claims to see and to understand and to teach the truth about people. I can just tell you, going up, coming up, you know, working on a PhD in counseling psychology and 10 years of higher education in psychology, that was, every, that was all of it. Constantly, every day. Everybody had a philosophy of what it meant to be a human. What was really wrong with us? How we're changed? 1 Timothy 6, 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Whereas it can lead you astray. You can be taken captive by some form of knowledge in such a way that you're no longer walking in the faith. And so Timothy was to guard the deposit of God's word generally and the gospel of Jesus Christ specifically, refusing to take to heart any other worldview. 
any other promises of human salvation, any other promises of societal progress. So what it means is we really do need to learn how to see everything through the lens of Scripture, to interpret everything through the lens of Scripture, to be so in the Word of God, to so have the aroma of Christ that as soon as you smell the dead carcass of some worldly philosophy, you know it. You can smell it. You can see it. And then to interact with it, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. That's the other thing that's really important to see. You're not going to win this argument just by shouting at people or by just mere human logic and reasoning. Though we walk in the flesh as human beings physically embodied in this world, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We're not going to win this by elections or by just getting the right people in education. The battle is bigger, deeper, longer. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to de destroy strongholds. Think about that, divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what strongholds? Well, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's a usually misapplied verse. Usually you're like, okay, when you have that lustful thought, take it captive. That's actually not what this is about. The thoughts here are the thoughts of philosophy, the thoughts of the world, the, philosophy, the arguments, the lofty opinions, the philosophies that go against the knowledge of God. So just to think that there is a power that God gives his church to destroy those. And we have to think about, okay, what, what does that mean? Well, it means we spend a lot of time praying, much more time praying. It means we spend much more time sharing the gospel. It means we spend much more time ministering this word, knowing that it's the spirit of God and the people of God ministering the word of God by the power of God that actually changes the hearts of people, that actually takes that individual, that, that man, that woman, that child, and destroys all these other arguments from having sway over their life and over their soul. And so that we live as human beings, confined to human faculties and frailties, we don't aim to wage war based on those faculties. And so if you're mentally exhausted by all this, if you're just stressed and worn out spiritually, if you're saying things to yourself like, I'm so sick and tired of, or just angry and bitter and resentful, or start making sweeping statements about how the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket, then those are all signs that you're probably trying to wage war based on the flesh. In the spirit, we pray to bring the word of God to bear a divine power to destroy strongholds. So on the one hand, we're gonna dismantle and debunk arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God but then on the other hand, we want to display how the word of Christ is comprehensively better. The word of Christ is far superior to actually explaining what it means to be a human being. That's my confidence in conversations, is I think the word of God is actually far superior in explaining where oppression comes from, what it really is, what racism is fundamentally about, what justice is, what injustice is, what social justice is. Because it's only the word of God that will actually relate all that to God. It's amazing how many definitions of social justice there are that don't make mention of God. 
when what Scripture gives us is, okay, all justice is only justice in reference to God. And so we'll begin by, you'll see that section A there in your notes, deconstructing the model. So what we'll do is walk through these seven lenses, giving some sort of case study examples from critical race theory and where critical race theory sort of lands with each of these lenses. And then Claire will come up and we're going to actually then evaluate what, what we've kind of looked at through those lenses and actually offer, okay, how would scripture see this? How would the Lord have us apply his word to this aspect of critical race theory or any theory. So at this stage, we're not trying to criticize or debunk the theory, but take it apart. That's what we mean by deconstruct it. You've got to sort of look at it through these lenses in order to understand what you're talking about. Because it can be very tempting just to hear one thing that somebody says, have an emotional response, and then react without taking the time to really listen, without taking the time to sort of read and learn to understand, okay, what am I actually looking at? And so I'm going to try to use category words that are pretty simple to understand, but then other words that are going to be harder to understand. Words like epistemology. Because at the end of the day, if we're going to enter into this world and read these kinds of books and have these kinds of discussions, we've got to think through some different categories of words that are going to be important. And so knowledge is the first big category, the first lens, epistemology, which just is a way of saying the study of sources of knowledge. And in particular, the authority behind those sources of knowledge. Who decides what is true? That's the big question. So whatever theory you're looking at, just ask, who decides what's true? From whose mind do these ideas arise? Against whose word are the truth claims tested? Those are questions of epistemology. And as soon as you read something and it's clear, this doesn't come from the mind of God. His word isn't the test for the truthfulness. That doesn't mean you just throw the whole thing out. It just means now you change your posture of interaction. Okay, I'm going I'm to read this much more skeptically. I'm going to read this much more critically, much more carefully. I'm not going to throw it all out. I'm just going to be on guard. If God's word isn't ultimately the test... From whose mind do the principles of the theory arise? So some of you may be familiar with CRT. So yes, in CRT, where does the knowledge come from? What's the authority behind the knowledge? Some of you may know. You have to shout it out loud if you know. Probably source number one is what's called personal storytelling. That's the biggest. So just the experience of the oppressed the experience of the mistreated, the, the, the experience of the minority group, provided they think in a way that agrees with CRT, serves as the truth about human experience and reality. And so though CRT kind of denies the existence of universal truth, capital T, truth, because its origins are postmodern, Yet, you read enough of it and there's really strong truth claims it makes. Just like every theory has to. So I actually did my pre-doctoral residency training for a whole year at a postmodern counseling agency, which was fascinating. To counsel human life without any sense of what the truth is. Um, but we did it. 
And that's what you were trained in and thought about. And that's really some of the roots of where CRT arises from. CRT is often called applied postmodernism, or I like to say radical postmodernism, politically active postmodernism. And according to one of the books that, yeah, if, you, if you're okay reading a couple of unbelieving, highly liberal authors that have a marvelous assessment of critical theories, it's this book by Pluckrose and Lindsay, Cynical Theories. And so they actually sort of go after CRT and all the other critical theories. Oh, thank you. And kind of show that, okay, this didn't arise. And so one of the mistakes how like Marxism and it just isn't. So Marxism arose out of modernism, all the CRT stuff arose out of postmodernism. And so they're kind of based on two big, what they would call postmodernist principles. One is the postmodern knowledge principle, which means radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is even obtainable, and a commitment to what's called cultural constructivism, social constructivism, that your view of reality is is constructed by your language, constructed by your storytelling, constructed, and so it's all in the eye of the beholder. Whereas modernism is gonna say, no, no, there's a, an objective reality out there, and through the scientific method, through philosophic inquiry, through logical steps, you can actually determine and learn the truth. And so two very ta different takes on truth, whereas as believers who believe in the word of God, we would actually say no to both. And so that's the danger sometimes. I hear a lot of Christians argue against postmodernism merely with modernism. When we would say, no, the truth is sort of constructed, but nor do we discover it, it's revealed. It's actually something that God must declare. And so amazingly, it is something that in one sense is constructed with words. Is our reality constructed by words? Absolutely. Isn't it fascinating that sometimes the error is just off and who it's about. Yet in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with his words. He spoke it into being. So in one sense, postmodernism and modernism are both claims to be God, just in very different ways. And so the authority, though, behind knowledge is, yeah, my own experience, my own personal storytelling, my own constructed reality. That's the postmodern knowledge principle. Then there's the postmodern political principle, which is a belief that society is formed from systems of power, defined by systems of power, hierarchies. And it's those systems of power that decide what is true, decide what can be known. And so that's the, the view of knowledge, if you will. Second lens is the language lens or taxonomy, or the system of classification. So the questions here we're asking is what vocabulary, what phrases, what categories hold the conceptual framework together? How is language used to create rules? How is language used to create the parameters for the conversation? As well as the jurisdiction of expertise, that's very important. Like every discipline out there has its own taxonomy. You go talk to physicians, there's a taxonomy. You go talk to psychiatrists, there's a taxonomy. You talk to engineers, there's a taxonomy. Every discipline, there's taxonomies, and that sort of determines how are we gonna talk about and understand all this? What are the rules of the conversation? 
and who gets to decide who violates them? And so as a whole, the taxonomy of CRT serves the purposes of the theory. Namely, that the vocabulary, the phrases create categories to interpret Western society through the lens of power and oppression. That's why when you'll read it, you'll see everything seems to be about power and oppression. Like those are two of the controlling realities of all of life because those are lenses that they see it all through. And the language that is used is, is sort of controlling and directing that conversation. Language is also important because you really need to find out what people mean by things. So just the phrase social justice. You talk to a liberal philosopher and they'll have one definition of that. You talk to a critical theorist and they'll have a very different definition of social justice and what it is. You hopefully talk to a regenerate Christian filled with the spirit of God, seeing life through the word of God, and they'll have their own definition of social justice. And what's fascinating is who do you ever meet that go, you know what, I hate social justice. I am for social injustice. Nobody says that, right? Everybody's for social justice. It's just everyone has very different definitions of social justice. And so the definition matters. The language matters. Race as a word. Oppression, oppressed, oppressor, power. And so they're going to be, yeah, CRT is, is going to present a taxonomy that interprets all of reality with those kinds of words, where those are the key categories. Inherent racism, systemic racism, institutional racism. So we'll present not just those words and phrases and then define them and then say, in every Western culture is saturated with those things, unavoidably everywhere all the time. So it's not just words, but okay, these are the words we're saying you have to interpret all of reality through. So when you walk into the room, it's all about hierarchies. It's all about power. It's all about oppression. It's all about racism. It's all about, okay, who's doing what to whom in these ways. And so before long, that's what you see everywhere. Because that's the grid you're being given to interpret the world. White supremacy, white privilege, whiteness, differential racialization, legal realism, interest convergence, intersectionality, anti-essentialism, Voice of color thesis, legal storytelling. Those are all words that have definitions that, again, fill the theory. And one of the things we have to do is, is sort of if you're interacting with a theory like that, it's like, okay, what are the words and what do they mean? And hopefully if, if a Mormon shows up at your house, two of them usually, and walks into your living room and begins to present and try to win you over to Mormonism, are they going to talk about Christ? Are they going to talk about the Bible? Are they going to talk about everlasting life and salvation and grace and forgiveness? But do we mean the same things? And so at every turn, you have to say, okay, what do you mean by that word? Who, what do you, okay, you said Christ. Who is Christ to you? Do you mean he is God in the flesh, incarnate, conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he died and rose again as the Son of God and now all of a sudden you realize, oh, we're talking about two completely different people once you start describing it. And so that's the same here. Any theory you interact with, you have to go in and not assume you know what's meant by what's said. 
but find out, okay, what... And if you've been in some of these conversations as well, you realize how quickly and easy it is to just completely talk past each other. And some of it because there's just huge taxonomy gaps. Third lens is mankind, or ontology especially, meaning the study of the nature of being. That's what ontology means. So when it comes to human beings, okay, what is the nature of our being? Who is man and woman? What is human nature? How did we come into being and what is distinctive about us when compared to the rest of creation? And what you'll find in CRT is it doesn't actually specifically address those questions directly. It's not chiefly concerned with the origin of the human race or the essential being of a person. You read enough and you go, okay, it seems to assume evolutionary theory just the way almost everything, that's part of the irony because evolutionary theory came sort of through the scientific method, if you will, through modernism, which are all things that CRT rejects. But what you find is, in many ways, you read a lot of these and they're just not trying to contend with that question. Who are we fundamentally? Where did we come from? Why do we exist? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a person? Social constructivism reigns when it comes to people. That's why gender, therefore, is a social construct we create with language. That's how now gender, you can blur the, the, the lines between male and female. Because gender isn't real. It's not really out there. It's something we construct socially. Something we construct with words. The physical anatomy is real. They're not gonna be so, go so far as to say it's an illusion. No, it's real, but what we assign to that anatomy, what we assign to gender, that we create that. It's constructed. So hopefully, when you hear me say that, like Genesis 2 and is just firing on all cylinders in your mind, right? When you hear that, okay, we decide male-female. It comes from us. Which is one of the real points of the movie Zootopia, if you ever saw it, took your kids to see it. The basic underlying premise is you can be whatever you want to be. That's the message they're trying to deliver. It doesn't, again, doesn't make it satanic. Your children can't watch it. It just, again, means as you interact, you have to pay attention. You have to then sit with your kids and go, okay, what do you, what do you think the real point is they're trying to make? Is that, okay, in some ways, whatever these boundaries are that God created in species and in animals and in things, that's actually blurrier than you thought. And you can actually decide who you are, what you are, where you come from, what you're for. Biblical views of personhood are views as constructs of modern Western white men to maintain power and control. That's how CRT would see a lot of categories. Even though the Bible was delivered by God through his messengers, you know, it dates back 3,500 years and it actually based in a Middle Eastern culture, much older than even modern culture. So it's interesting how everything that is disagreeable is just thrown into its Western. As opposed to, if there's anything the Bible is, it's not Western. You know, it didn't come from within Western Enlightenment modernistic values. This was something that went much further back and from someone outside of all of it. See, I'm already on to interpreting. I wasn't going to do that. Fourth category is God, or theology, the study of God. 
Who is God? What does the theory in question claim or ignore about him? If he exists in the theory, then how does he interact with the world? How does the theory explain God or faith in God or God's? So as you can imagine, as a theory, CRT rejects the existence of God, rejects the existence of a being outside of time and space who created all this, who governs all of this, who's sovereign over all this, who has words that he has spoken about what reality is, whose words has authority, someone who has power and his power is benevolent. And so those are, again, the idea of benevolent power is a concept that CRT can't wrestle with, doesn't exist in that system. It arose from a postmodern framework, which means religions and gods are treated as social constructs. That's why you can hear that kind of talk, oh, well, okay, you believe that, or you could see it this way, because, again, that's something that's constructive. The reality of a God who exists outside time and space, who created the world, who's holy and perfect, who reveals himself through his inspired word, that's rejected. Fifth lens or category is problem or epidemiology, the study of disease, or homardiology, the study of sin. So applying the word to ills of the human condition is what we're talking about here, whether cultures, whether individuals, whether societies, what is wrong with the world? Every theory has an opinion of that. What's wrong with people if something's wrong? Where did it go wrong? Why did it go wrong? Where and how did all of our troubles begin? So those of you who know CRT, what, how would CRT answer that question? What are the chief troubles? So slavery, keep going. Racism, keep going. So yeah, just evil, dominant cultures in power, particularly white culture. Inequality, it's one of the big troubles. Oppression, yeah, power structures. So those are the chief sicknesses of human society. And race-based oppression springs from the inerrant racism of the dominant group. It's not avoidable, it's just reality. Social problems result from unjust societal structures. Cultural biases rather than individual factors or variables. So one of the things you'll find in critical theories is that there's the loss of both the universal and the individual. And so universal truths that are just true, no matter what of all people, are rejected. But also the individual, individually made, with individual responsibilities, with individual will, that thinks, feels, acts, that's lost as well. Because now all people need to be clumped into identity groups. Where, okay, you're defined by these identity boundaries. So now as soon as you walk into a room, you see, okay, there's this person of this skin color, of this age, of this position, of this authority, of this culture, and now that they're in this sexuality, in this religion, and now that defines, now they're part of that group. And therefore, white supremacy expresses itself through law, through economics, through other societal structures that simply help the dominant group maintain power and control. 
What it means is like principles like constitutional law are to be distrusted. The rationalism of the Enlightenment, empiricism, and all the legal reasoning that stems from it just feeds the problem. And so that's why you'll hear sort of this idea that all of Western civilization needs to be torn down. All, the Constitution needs to be torn down. Legal reasoning as it has existed needs to be, because all of that is the product of unjust power structures. So anything post-enlightenment, anything Western in that way. And that's why, you know, as some of you may know, CRT arose out of legal scholarship. The terms were originally coined by, by legal professors, by lawyers, trying to make sense of, okay, why does the law operate this way for different sets of people? How does legal reasoning exist depending on which particular culture groups you belong to? And trying to explain that. Since dominant groups establish laws, establish systems, establish language, those are just other means to oppress non-dominant groups. So again, when you get to the evaluation, the lens of it, there's no sense of, okay, but what about laws that are based on God's law? Is, is there a way to evaluate unjust laws? Are there unjust laws that have ever been written? Have there been all kinds of unjust laws that have been written in this country? All kinds of unjust laws related to race and skin color in this country. Scores of them. But then is there a way? Does God give us a way to evaluate those and to see the injustice of those all over and against his law? And so we'll get to this later, but what we don't want to be heard as saying is, yeah, none of these problems are problems. Or none of these issues are issues. But rather, the word of God and the gospel of Christ has a radically distinctive way of going about seeing them and understanding them. And that's why I have no problem like interacting with a critical race theorist and being able to say, actually, it's a lot worse than you, th you say. It's much worse than you think. Much more global, much more comprehensive, much deeper. And it's actually not just about horizontally people and people. It's much worse than that because it's actually about God. And that changes the scale of the offense of all the things that we're talking about. And so positive change, or I'm sorry, solution, that's the sixth lens. Soteriology, study of salvation. How is the human condition healed, restored, redeemed, reconciled? How is positive change defined and then brought about? Although critical race theories aren't going to think about salvation as a whole, soteriology as a whole, they do propose solutions to the human condition. Lots of them. Yeah, in his book, are we, and, and We Are Not Saved, The Elusive Quest for Racial Justice, Derek Bell Harvard Law Professor presents racial justice is the solution, equality. Those are the, the healing that our society needs. So all energy, all time, all policies, all efforts need to move toward racial justice according to and equality according to. That's why you'll see pushes to, to see it moved into corporations, into schools, into because everybody needs to be trained. Everybody needs to be won over and evangelized. Everybody needs to be discipled <clears throat> to see the problem as CRT sees it and to apply the solution. 
And again, we can see that and we can understand it because we do the same thing, right? Hopefully, as Christians, we're interacting in the same, the same process. It's one of the reasons why CRT has, is no longer seen as a philosophy, but a religion. That it's not just a, a postmodern philosophy that is sort of trying to explain the world, trying to make sense of reality, but rather radicalized now in that it's an active policy. Like we, we actually need to evangelize and disciple people and help them change the world this way. And in a way, we can appreciate it. And that's why, again, as you're interacting with somebody around it, don't just fight. Go, you know what? I really appreciate what you're doing because I'm doing the exact same thing. So you go first, then I'll go. You evangelize me, then I'll evangelize you. You disciple me, and then I'll disciple you. And we'll just see where that goes. You go first. Because it, and, and that's why sometimes as Christians, we can get too angry, too upset, that everybody in the world is trying to do what we're doing. Rather than saying, no, we get it. We understand it. Satan is crafty. He's trying to make disciples too. And in the world, everybody's trying to make disciples of whatever it is, whatever they're selling. Every salesperson in the world is trying to make disciples. And so in one way, we can understand what people are after. Positive change requires dismantling of current Western society in order to rebuild a just and equitable one. And we hear that, and you might go, well, that's terrible. Unless you think what? Unless you realize what? That's precisely what the gospel is doing. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Like, how about melting the universe? That's radical, right? Just destroying everything and then creating a new heavens and a new earth. Just dismantling all the ideas of mankind, Western or not, in order to yeah, build his kingdom. <clears throat> it's very difficult to determine how leaders of CRT intend to bring it about. Or even better, who should oversee that operation? Because at the end of the day, you're still left with, okay, who's in charge of that? The dismantling project. Who's in charge of the rebuilding? Helping members of the majority group see and grieve and confess and turn from the inerrant evil of their majority group is essential. That's part of it. Again, it's tempting, especially if you're a member of the majority group, to get all offended. But again, rather than just hit back, like accept and realize what's going on so that you realize, okay, we're doing the same thing, just better. Is we're actually trying to help people see, okay, the majority group is everybody. And the problem is sin. And the answer is repentance and faith in Jesus and to be born again and transformed in the image of Christ. And so we'll get to that in a little bit of how do you actually interact with those things. Redistribution of power, of wealth, and status across all groups seems to be assumed. Society-wide education in the worldview seems to be important. Again, and this is where we want to be so careful as Christians, don't argue with this with capitalism. Don't debate this with, again, modernism. Or just because this is where we, even as, as the body of Christ, don't realize how saturated we are in other worldviews. Equally human. 
And we just argue with that human worldview with our own human worldview. When we're all going to get to heaven and probably be amazed at the equality of it, amazed at the unfairness of it, all those who worked so hard to get there and others who didn't, and yet they're there. Remember the parable of the Minas where Jesus took all these different people to work in the vineyard all at different hours of the day? And then, then the, those who just worked an hour got a denarii. Those who worked 12 got a denarii. And every capitalist just thought that's wretched, you know? <laughs> Right? They just saw the rotten. And so, yeah, be careful putting Jesus into your capitalist box or putting God into. Again, sometimes we don't realize there's ditches on every side. And so the discussion we're trying to have is, is not actually capitalism, Marxism. It's Christ and whatever speculation of the world that is being arrayed against him. And so we have enemies on every side. It's just there's those that are dressed in enemy uniforms and those who aren't. And we have to learn to see, okay, but yet the arguments are equally dangerous. And seventhly, the lens of purpose or teleology, which is just the study of aim or the study of purpose. Eschatology, the study of last things. That according to this theory you're examining, what is the ultimate conclusion? What is the ultimate end? What are the last days for which this theory is striving? What is their version of heaven? What is their version of glory? What is the utopia that they're offering? And so for CRT, what is it? Yes, yeah, society without inequality, only equality. What else? Society without injustice. Society without oppression. Now, are we all also praying for that? And so that's one, again, you can sit with this person and just go and say, hey, me too. I also want a society without injustice. I also want a society with equality, depending on what you're talking about. I also want a society where there's no oppression, no abuse, no racism. You know what? That's exactly what I've been redeemed to give my life to. That's exactly the message that I bear. So again, what's your message? How do you intend to do that? But how do I think it's done? This means current power structures and ways of knowing need to be dismantled. A society without power structures would be ideal, even though such a society would be impossible to achieve. And again, this is where we would differ. Is, you know, we're actually preparing for a world without injustice, without oppression, but where there is massive power in huge power disparity. But then we get to explain to people why we're not afraid of that power. But if you're on the wrong side, you should be afraid of that power. So seven lenses. Any question about the seven lenses before we get into the evaluating the model through those lenses sort of step? Any comments, questions about those? Jacob.
Yeah. Yeah, so when you get up here like to the language, to taxonomy, and you're evaluating it, there'll be, okay, social justice may be a phrase. You can go, okay, I agree with that. I'm for social justice. But what do they mean? And is it the same? But then there may be, okay, race. And it's, okay, this is something that's socially constructed by dominant culture in order to demean or minimize other race because you can now you have to have races defined in order to exalt yours over another in order to achieve more power and control in society and you can look I, that's one of those areas where we can look at CRT and go yeah you're absolutely right we would agree with you there now where you think that comes from and what you think the answer is is far more shallow than mine like I have deeper things to say about that than you do and Again, we're already leaping into this, but because ours is going to have to do with the image of God, the image of God and people, and what it means to be dignified and a dignified person, and what it means to be yeah, in his image and to function as a human being, why God created nations, why God created cultures, why God created all these different sorts of groups and nations and tribes and tongues, and how those are going to fit into his kingdom to come. And so, again, the intersection point, yeah, you're going to look at Okay, taxonomy, what, what do they call this? And don't just throw it out, because that might be the very talking point that gets you into sharing the gospel with that person. When you see, actually, I agree with you, but I go to a radically different place with the problem that you see. Other questions, comments for you? Under the sun, right? Um, and that's we've seen how that's the case for CRT. Um, I'm I'm wondering, with reference to that point, uh, how self-consciously would advocates of CRT define their own position in terms of things like the Enlightenment or modernism or postmodernism? Um, I mean, those are not new either, are they? Like, I mean, postmodernism you might think has antecedents in Epicurus, two thousand. 500 years ago. Yeah. Um, so are they self-consciously defining the position this way? And is it helpful to approach their specific truth claims in distinction to historical periods like the Enlightenment or modernism or postmodernism? Yeah, you know, this is what's hard about discussion because depending on who you're talking to, they may or may not be self-conscious about where any of it comes from. Um, what postmodernism modernism, modernism is, what modernism is, yeah, because you could even go back to Pilate, who says to Jesus, well, what is truth? Well, there's postmodernism. Um, and so it, that was 2,000 years ago. And so there's always going to be those seeds and threads. But it's certainly at the middle of the last century when that took on real sort of writing scholarship form. And when you have the Michael Foucaults and the others that are writing really significantly, really defining the terms of postmodernism, really putting the treads and the parameters on it, is that's when you can go back and go, okay, but this, whatever we're calling this, this is where it seems to have most of its real roots, even more recently in the last 70 years. Yeah. So evaluating the model under the lens of scripture. So I'm going to get Claire's help at this point. She's going to write on the board for us. So when you think about CRT, 
looking at it through the lens of Scripture and actually what Scripture would claim. And you think about knowledge or epistemology. What does the Bible teach that both either agrees or disagrees with CRT? So there's one, that the authority behind knowledge for us is God. And where do we get that? From the Bible. So even from, yeah, from the Word of God. So we would put up there, yeah, God is authority of knowledge. Word of God is how we know, capital T, truth. So Jesus, John 17, 17, is going to say, thy word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word, your word, Lord, is, is the truth. What else? Yeah, there's no error in what God has spoken. But what about human knowledge of philosophy, science, things that we come up with? Full of error. And again, that would be an interesting point, a lens again of the knowledge lens. When you look at this theory, we would say actually nothing that anybody says can be trusted. Doesn't make, there's no true, no true things in it, no facts in it. But if it's human beings, that we always have to put an asterisk next to it. And so skepticism of human philosophies and knowledge, it doesn't mean we don't like science. It just means we only like good science. And there's not a whole lot of it. So we like good science, not bad science. We like good philosophy, not bad philosophy. So anytime, yeah, somebody's going to say, yeah, Christians, you don't, just don't like science. No, no, love science. It just needs to be good. Don't like bad science. And there's a lot of that, right? That's why you really read enough evolution. You go, this isn't even good science. And so it's not, okay, we're against science. It's that, okay, let's actually do it well. Um, what else? Jacob. Yeah, so when you think about just, you may have heard the phrase for the noetic effects of the fall. Just the corruption of knowing that is part of being a sinner, part of being fallen, is that everything we see and perceive is going to be distorted a little bit. And then it gets in us, and however we're going to interpret is going to be corrupted in a little way. And again, having the mind of Christ being filled with the Spirit of God doesn't eliminate that danger. It just means through the Word of God, you're better equipped to contend with it and to see it. And therefore, submit yourself to knowledge that you really can trust. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think about personal storytelling? Is it useless? How would you look at that through lens of Scripture? Terry.
That's good. So then when it comes to personal storytelling, personal experience, even looking at it through the lens of scripture, we'd say, okay, this is still helpful. This is still personal. This is still real. This is still valuable to them. Just their life, their experiences, it does matter. It's just it's very different to let that be exalted to the point of this is what knowledge is. This is what truth is. Versus, okay, all experience has to be submitted to the word of God and to Christ. Yeah, and how we understand it. Yeah, language, when you think about just the lens of language, like tackling sort of the things that CRT is trying to tackle, and you look at it through the lens of language, does scripture give a different set of words or the same set of words with different meaning? What kind of words do you see scripture deals with that CRT is trying to deal with? So equity, equality, justice. Yeah, is that a word in the Bible? all over the place. What's really fascinating is, is what you'll never see the word in CRT literature, righteousness, which is, a, which is a connected word to justice. It's important in social justice, you gotta remove righteousness because you can't import that category that has such loaded religious meaning in how you determine who's in the right before God. But yeah, so justice, oppression. Yeah, is that, is that a word that scripture deals with? Yeah. What else? Authority. Is that the word? Yeah. Authority. Power. Does, po- does power show up in the Bible? Yeah. What other words? Partiality. Yeah. Love. Not often. Uh, if ever, yeah. So this is so this is the great. This is the other thing you're looking at. It's not just what words are there, but what words are missing. What words aren't it? So the word sin isn't there. The word depravity, yeah. Alienation from God. Um, those are sorts. Of, those types of phrases you won't see there. Yeah, restoration, reconciliation. Even the word reconciliation and that, you know, just the idea that God in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, is reconciling the world to himself. Like even Jesus came, lived, died, rose, ascended to reconcile God's people to himself and God's people to each other. Yeah. Forgiven. Yeah. Change even. Transformation. Is there such a thing as a former racist? I think so. Someone who has been transformed by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Someone, some of you once were, 1 Corinthians 6. God would say there's such a thing as a former homosexual, a former adulterer, a former. And that's actually not something that really enters into the language of CRT. That you can be transformed. That you can be changed. Some of you once were, but not anymore. You know, what CRT might call structural racism, the Bible would call Psalm 94.20, injustice framed by statute. It's, a, it's the phrase there in Psalm 94. We talked about the wicked rulers who frame injustice with statutes. So the idea that injustices can be baked into laws, does the Bible see that as real? Absolutely. You even look at just the trial and execution of Jesus Christ. 
it's riddled with injustice. It's riddled with the laws not being followed for how you try a man in Israel. Is they just, everything about, it was kangaroo court after kangaroo court that's going to be set up. And so we actually see the story all through the Bible of unjust laws, unjust systems, unjust structures. You think about Israel in Egypt, how many unjust laws were established to enslave them? How many unjust structures? That's fundamentally how slavery has to work in those cultures. And so, again, the Bible sees it. The Bible has language for it. And so, again, as you're sitting and interacting with somebody who's maybe bringing CRT to discussion, we're not going to say, okay, I disagree with all those words. We're going to say, okay, yeah, those are great words. I just have very different definitions and ways of it. And in fact, I've got about a thousand more words than that to bring to the conversation. And half of them are going to make you very uncomfortable. How about third category? Just man, ontology, just who we are, where we come from. How would scripture sort of, sort of assess and evaluate and debunk CRT when it comes to people? So the, the depravity of the human condition. The, it's not just divided up into good people, bad people. Oppressed, non-oppressed. Power, the, the, those are real categories, oppressed and, and oppressor and oppressed, predator, prey. But yeah, there's also all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, what else? A sense of individual responsibility. A sense that you can be, you know, no matter what family you come from, no matter what culture you're born into, no matter what your experiences might be, that what rules your heart will rule your life. And whether that's Christ or something else. How about people being made in the image of God? How about all people with worth, with dignity, to be honored and respected because they bear the image of God? Owing God worship because they're in the image of God? Owing one another love because they're in the image of God? How about just the fact that people have souls? This is actually an interesting departure point, both in postmodernism and usually in modernism. This is where, again, the Christian worldview is distinctive from all of them. And the fact that we would actually see, okay, people have souls that God created and they're joined to their bodies inseparably interdependent. And they're not just bodies with synapses firing, with social conditioning, but will actual souls that are interacting with God all the time. How about the fact that people are born to worship? That we're worshipful creatures. We're either going to worship God or something else. And so you sit with someone as you're talking about CRT and say, well, who do you worship? And it's just a category they're not thinking about. It's a category that many people aren't thinking about when it comes to people that were made to worship, the centrality of worship to human experience. How about fourth lens, God or theology? How would you sort of examine CRT under the lens of theology, of God? And who is that God? What's that? Yeah, which day are we talking about? Yeah, so without realizing, okay, self is God. Self determines what's true, what's real, what's right, what's wrong. Is God a storyteller? 
Yeah, did he give us a story? And does his story have authority? Does it have authority over all other stories? And so, again, there's a way in which my personal storytelling having authority is a claim to be God in one sense. In many ways, it's when you look at CRT through the lens of God and theology, you're almost going to be struck by what's missing, not by what's present. It's what's, what's absent. Who is going to answer to God for what? Justice, injustice before God? And even the idea that there's going to be a courtroom set up where books are going to be opened and all deeds are going to be judged. Like now, legal scholarship ought to concern itself with that. Right? There's, there, and so, in, in other words, they're concerned for justice and legal things. It's all good. It just needs to get higher. Psalm 62, 11 through 12, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render a man, to a man according to his work. So when we look at through the lens of God and theology, is power a problem? It's not in itself, right? But you mean something, Terry. What's the problem? Abuse of power. Misuse of power. So again, that's where we're best equipped to look through scripture at life and see how, yeah, abuse of power, misuse of power is as old as the as people. Here's Cain who's gonna abuse his position with his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, actually you are. And he used that position to kill him. How about problem? Yeah. Ed. Yeah. So even just that reality, right? That God eternally existing. You just walk through who God is, what God's about, all that, where creation came from, how God relates to his creation. In everything you're doing, you're introducing something that is foreign to the CRT theory and foreign to most theories. Secular, that's what makes them secular theories. When we think about, okay, this is a secular theory, we fundamentally mean this is a, trying to grapple and contend with life without God. Um, how about problem? How would scripture see the problem that CRT is trying to grapple with? Yeah, scripture would, okay, okay, this is sin. This is the sin nature. This is the fallenness of people. Yeah, and, and so even grappling the idea that oppression is what sinful people do with power. And historically, you just look at history and go, and it doesn't matter the big group that has it. 
They're going to do something wrong with it. And that's where a good question to get into as you're having some of these discussions, even with somebody who's holding to that kind of position, to say, okay, who decides that it's wrong? Who decides that oppression is evil? Who decides that where do you even get that idea from? The idea of rightness and wrongness. The idea of evil use of power versus benevolent use of power. So all those kinds of questions eventually lead back to, okay, there's someone outside of all this who's impressed upon us his image in some sense of conscience, some sense of right and wrong, some sense of, okay, you look at what's happening, you go, that's unjust. Yeah, Psalm 70 or 94, 20 through 21. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But what does God call them? Wicked rulers. That that's where it comes from. Yeah, right. Yeah, a real sin and a real result, a real consequence, real effects. And this is what I mean by in these discussions, we're, we're going to look and see all that same trouble. And with the CRT theorists theorist say, yeah, I see it too. But it's, I actually see it as much worse than you do. Much more comprehensive, much more serious, much more unchangeable, that, and actually much more damnable. Like you said, the wages is death. And not just an earthly death, but an eternal spiritual death, alienated from God, that there's actually God that has to be reckoned with. And therefore, the cost of making it right is far greater than you could ever imagine. Like whatever your version of, and this gets to the solution, whatever your version of reworking society, you're just smearing the grease around the countertop. At the end of the day, the Son of God had to die. Like his blood had to be shed. Wrath had to be borne away. He had to raise, like he had to give his spirit. Hearts had to be regenerated. And so we would take what, you know, CRT just sees in this little lens and actually go, actually, let's blow it way out and say that that thing you see and you're bothered by is part of a much bigger, more tangled and gnarly thing that none of us have the answer for. Um, so part of our goal is to make them feel more hopeless. You know, in whatever it is they're trying to do so that you would see, yeah, there's only one hope in the end. And finally, purpose. Yeah, how would the Word of God kind of, through the lens of purpose, look at CRT and, and kind of evaluate it? In one way, there's sort of an, a, a vanity to life, an emptiness to life, and especially just human striving after whatever we're trying to do. Yeah, so in one way, you're saying, okay, the thing you're looking for is just temporary change on earth, utopian society on earth. Whereas, yes, yeah, scripture is going to say, okay, that's actually going from bad to worse and winding down and it's going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So our version of the eschaton is going to be very different than their version of this utopia. 
this sort of earthly society. I think we skipped solution. Or I talked about it just without actually naming that title. But yeah, even when you think about soteriology and solution, right? What, what scripture are you going to look at CRT and, and critique and evaluate? It's just reshuffling power of the solution. Yeah, it's, yeah, and the amount that is works-based, that is actually fundamentally legalistic in how it tries to bring about change. But how what Scripture is going to offer is just a radical alternative, just the gospel of Christ, transformed hearts and lives to the gospel of Christ, the church. Well, I don't know about any country in the history of the world, but... Certainly, there's been lots of opportunities to thrive. And what we tend to do with that is usually squander it in some way. And this is, sometimes, I mean, this is some of the mistake we can get, that yes, it was easier circumstantially to be a Christian under Constantine than under Nero. But it's a mistake to think that the church was healthier or better off. It's a mistake to think that the circumstantial ease is actually what makes the church grow. As if the way that, you know, what about Ephesians 4 that we read earlier would make us to think that the culture is going to determine whether or not the church grows. That the culture and the condition of the culture is going to determine whether or not Christians thrive. And so, yeah, there's a way in which, yeah, we've enjoyed great freedoms in the United States to be the church, to worship for the, and we shouldn't sort of diss on those and go, I wish I didn't have them. But at the same time, what we shouldn't think for one minute is that our faith in the depth of our faith and our health as a church is somehow dependent on them, uh, which is just another form of idolatry. Yeah, so just a great point that at the end of the day, yeah, salvation isn't really actually the goal. Yeah, reconciliation to God, forgiveness, redemption. So that's why the message of CRT is fundamentally hopeless in the end. Um, because you're, you're, we're, we're promising, okay, we're going to be able to make all things new on our own and in our way, which just keeps you in the washing machine of despair. Whereas okay, what God's actually offering is, no, no, there is salvation in his name. There is redemption. There is forgiveness. There is reconciliation to God. There is everlasting hope. Right. So again, as you look through the lens on some of these things, you're going to see, okay, there's all these things that are missing. Now, what we want to be careful at times is to, is to judge a theory for not doing what it's not trying to do. And so I think that's sometimes the danger is all, is we wouldn't look at a theory of quantum physics and go, man, you're not contending with the sinfulness of people and how they're redeemed in Christ. Like, this is so incomplete. And so we do want to be careful there when we you know, when they're trying to do something that only the gospel can do, we want to see that. When they're trying to sort of define the problem the way only God should really define it, that's where, and again, that's what the lenses are about. But at the same time, we don't want to fault certain theories for not grappling with questions that they have no intention to grapple with or concern with or that they are think, think are even questions. So some of what we're doing there is we're not trying to critique them but rather introduce, hey, what about this question? That's, so I think that is an important Thing to say. We're probably out of time. Erica, go ahead. 
Yeah, just so, so can we even partner with different groups in abortion efforts of abolition or the abolition of slavery? Or I think the answer is well, yes. In one sense, there can be noble causes. There can be just causes. There can be, but I think it'll always be realizing, okay, but the, there's always going to be at some point we're going to part company and have vastly different goals of what we're actually trying to do and accomplish, what we're actually praying to see done that even if slavery isn't abolished, which it isn't, even if abortion isn't abolished, which it isn't, that there's still much work we can be doing and full of hope. And so I don't think it makes it wrong for a Christian or anybody else to engage in those kinds of social justice enterprises. I'm just always concerned with, as a Christian, maintaining a sense of distinctiveness in those groups of individuals to say, okay, we're, yes, we're walking toward this one aim, but just so you all know, there's about 19 things above this one that I'm thinking about as well. That isn't just for those groups we're trying to deal with, but actually for you as well. Um, and because just because we're all working for the abolition of slavery together doesn't mean your soul's okay or my soul's necessarily okay. Um, and so it's not the only thing in view. Yeah, and this gets back to Terry's point. There's just, we have to pray for much wisdom in the conversations. We have to pray for graciousness and uh, patience and peacefulness and just for the Spirit of God to govern those kinds of conversations because they're not always simple. Even, you know, we took an hour on this and we could go 10 more hours and say much, much more. Um, yeah, we didn't have time to talk about constructing a truthful and superior paradigm from Scripture. I think that's important, not just to debunk a theory but to actually present a positive presentation of here's how actually, yeah, you see oppression, I do too, but here's a better solution. Oh, you see injustice, I see it as well, but here's actually how in the storyline of scripture, God sees it even more clearly and has better things to say, more vivid things to say, more terrifying things to say, and much more hopeful things to say. And so, yeah, that can be for a different time. You know, one other thing I would love to say is that remember when you're interacting with people, not theories, is, is we can get so caught up in the issue, the topic, that we forget. This is an image bearer you're talking to. This is someone who God cares about we're talking to. And we can sometimes, all of a sudden, they become an android or a beast. Rather than, no, this is a person that we're actually trying to help them see the glories of Christ and the dread of sin and judgment and their need for forgiveness and the gospel. And that usually doesn't go well when we're shouting them down. Or we're panicked in some way because we think that whatever the logical discussion or the apologetic we're engaging in is, is going to be the key to winning them over. Rather, no, no, there has to be a supernatural work of the Spirit of God in their heart, just as there was in yours. How many of you came to faith in Christ because somebody argued you into it? Or maybe you thought that for the first year until you started reading more deeply in the Bible and God starts showing you how it really happened and all the things that he actually supernaturally used you. So we have to remember that we're interacting with people usually, human beings in the image of God and not just theories. But... Stephen, you want to come pray for us? You can wrap up.